Friday service, you're looking for that. Uh, Elam Baptist Church, we're going to combine and do a service for them. Larry's asked me to bring a message that time. Um, so it's going to combine Andy's singing at that time as well. So we're going to be a great time. If you're looking to, to go to Good Friday service, you can go there. You can go elsewhere. If there are other places you want to go, that's, that's fine. Uh, also, one thing that didn't make the bulletin was our purge and swap, which is next week. It's basically an opportunity for you to do some spring cleaning. It's also an opportunity for you maybe to pick up some free stuff. Uh, here's the idea. You've got some stuff that's good things you want to get rid of. This isn't just garbage time, okay? This is things that you think other people would need. Um, and uh, come 6 o'clock Saturday, Toby Mitchell is, uh, is really looking over that. I'm not sure where she is. Is she teaching? Looking over that, but we'll... Uh, bring that six o'clock, and, and we're going to put some tables up in the you know beyond this gym in the corridor. We often schedule, we often uh, gather. You just bring things that you just want to give away, and then uh, next Sunday during the potluck, you can uh, kind of go down there and take whatever would be useful for you. The rest of it will go to some uh, charitable organization. So that's that's next week. Uh, that didn't make the bulletins. I just want to make sure that was there. Also today's oratorio. Any of you who want to. Uh, Come to that, it would be great. Two o'clock at the Crimson Point, um, whatever, retirement center, I'm not sure what it is. But some kids are going to uh, present some things they've memorized and uh, just an opportunity to encourage and to reach out to the retired folks there. Let me pray and then we will get into God's Word. Lord, we have sung of um, great things of your glory, your mercy, your majesty your kindness, your grace. Um, would pray now that you would bring that upon us now. Teach us of your, your goodness. Show us of your mercy. And I pray as we look at the mercy that Jesus shows that you would engage our hearts to have the same heart of Christ, to reach out to those who don't know him and to share the message of the gospel of Christ. It's our only hope, it's our only joy, it's our only focus. Because it's in Him that we have hope. And it is a message that to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And yet to those who are perishing, it's uh, foolishness. So I pray that as uh, I preach the Gospel today, and preach of Christ, extending that to this woman of Samaria, um, may You be among us and teach us, energize Your Word for Your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you know that over the past uh, four weeks, we've been in the book of Jonah. And uh, the main lesson of that book has been God's heart for mercy. We saw the first chapter when Jonah fled and left, that God was pursuing Jonah because He wanted Jonah to bring the message of mercy to the Ninevites. We saw in chapter 2 about how Jonah received mercy when he was about to drown. God rescued him in the stomach of a great fish. We saw in chapter 3 of Jonah about how Nineveh received mercy. Greatest revival ever known in the world. At least 120,000 people, maybe more, repented at the half message of Jonah. Jonah preached judgment and they repented and God brought mercy. And then in chapter 4, really the the culmination of of, um, the book of Jonah was the fact that Jonah hated mercy. He didn't want mercy to go to the Ninevite people at all. I mean, these people had no regard for God. They were wicked. They were a violent people. Even the king himself confessed that they were a violent people. They sought to extend their dominance over the whole world, including the people of Israel. And yet God was merciful to them. He relented from the calamity which He had declared He'd bring upon them and He didn't do it. And the, the, the main lesson of that book comes in the very last verse, very last two verses of, of Jonah, in which God is, is looking upon Jonah and how is it that he responds to his own mercy. And the Lord said to Jonah, you had compassion on this plant for which you did not work and which you didn't cause to grow. It's because this plant had come in over, over Jonah. And he loved this plant. When it disappeared, he was fretful. He was angry that it didn't, didn't stay on because it was protecting him from the the scorching sun. And and then God asked the the question, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? This great people in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand as well as many animals. Shouldn't I have compassion on them? I mean, these people and animals are far more important than that plant. Jonah, should I have compassion upon them? And the book ends there. 
without an answer. It was a question to Jonah, but really it was a question to us. Do we love God's mercy? Are we merciful people who love to extend God's mercy to people, even our worst enemies? Well, in response to Jonah, I thought it would be good for us to just spend a week thinking more about God's mercy and, and thinking about the mercy of Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus is God incarnate, and He was so often Jesus, so often merciful, and it would be good for us really to see Jesus extending ministry, mercy, watching His mercy in action. And as I thought about this, there are many passages we could have chosen. He was merciful to the Canaanite woman when he was up in Tyre and Sidon. You remember she had a, a daughter who was afflicted. And she came and just begged mercy from Jesus. And Jesus said, uh, no, I went to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this Syrophoenician woman just begged. And finally Jesus granted her her wish that her daughter was healed. Although she had no promises from God at all. We could have looked at the mercy of Jesus in dealing with a woman caught in adultery. Caught in the very act, guilty as charged. And people were ready to condemn her and stone her. And yet Jesus said he was without sin, cast the first stone, just showing great mercy to her. We could have shown the mercy of Jesus in curing the ten lepers. He was just south of Galilee. Lepers were coming up to him and they just pleaded God's mercy. Jesus, have mercy on us. And he healed them all, ten of them, right there on the spot, allowing them to engage back into the culture because they were ostracized being Lepers. We could have looked at the mercy of Jesus there. We could have looked at the mercy of Jesus in the outskirts of Jericho and the blind beggars cried out, Lord, have mercy on us! Lord, have mercy on us! And at first he was, they were ignored a little bit, but they kept shouting and they kept shouting and, and Jesus was merciful to them and gave them sight. We could have looked at the mercy of Jesus in granting salvation to the thief on the cross. I mean, his sin was so bad that society deemed that he should be crucified for his sin. And there he was in the moment of his death being crucified right there along with Jesus, he simply says, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. He says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. That is total mercy. I mean, this guy couldn't do anything. He couldn't do any act to save his soul, but plead the mercy and grace and kindness of God in Christ. We could have looked at all those, but today, I, I, I've chosen the story of the woman at the well, found in John chapter 4, because I, I really want us to see how mercifully Jesus dealt with this Samaritan woman and we met by the well. It's not quite what the well looked like, but maybe. But I want to look at this passage because it really extends a, a great lesson to us in evangelism as well. See, the story of, of Jonah really isn't the story so much of, um, of just mercy as much as it is a missionary story of mercy to nations without a promise. And so likewise here in John chapter 4. It is a missionary call. It is a call to evangelism. It is a call to, to be like Jesus in many ways, to, to be proactive and to seek sinners and to seek to bring the gospel to them. And so just as Jonah was a call to missions and evangelism, so also is John 4 a call to missions and evangelism and reaching out, bringing a message of the mercy of God to a dying world. And I trust the story of the woman at the well will call us to bring to mind just the same heart that Jesus has, that His Father had, of bringing mercy to others. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. I just want to read, read much of the text. John 4 says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself was not baptizing, but His disciples were, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And He had to pass through Samaria. So He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from His journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for me for a drink? Ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, 
you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. She said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob are you who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. At that point His disciples came and they were amazed that He had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat! But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with him, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a great story of Jesus extending mercy to this woman and then by extension to this whole Samaritan city. It is parallel to Jonah's mission to Nineveh. The Ninevites were the enemies of Israel and so likewise also the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews. Oh, maybe they weren't military enemies but they were religious enemies for sure. In fact, the Jews saw the Samaritans as traitors to the Jewish God. In many ways, this rift began shortly after the days of Solomon. Solomon, about 900 B.C., took over for David, and after he died, then uh, Rehoboam, his son, was going to take over the kingship of Israel. And um, the kingdom split at that time. Rehoboam didn't follow the counsel of the elders, split. Jeroboam led ten tribes in the north. Rehoboam led two tribes in the south. And Jeroboam was a wicked man and brought Israel in the north into idolatry. Samaria is in the north. Judah, the two tribes are in the south. So they began to go in, into idolatry during the days of Jeroboam. Some 200 years later, 
The rift became greater between Judah and Israel when in 722 B.C. Tiglath-Pileser from Assyria came and conquered Israel, taking away many captive, killing many, having some remain in the land. Those who remained began to intermarry with the foreigners. And therefore Judah saw that the people in Israel as intermarrying and, and engaging themselves in the culture of the Assyrians and saw them as traitors and half-breeds, a, a mongrel race who betrayed their God. It still gets worse. Because after the Babylonian captivity, when Judah was taken to Babylon and, and came back, some of them, Ezra and Nehemiah, to build the temple, there were some who dwelt in the land of Samaria who weren't a big help in rebuilding Jerusalem. In fact, they resisted the work. And in Jesus' day, there was this huge rift between Jews and Samaritans. It makes our cultural rift today between black and white seem, seem nothing compared to what took place then. In many ways, Samaritan was a swear word. When the Jewish leaders were angry with Jesus and sought to accuse Him, they said, do we not say rightly you're a Samaritan and have a demon? They're calling Him a Samaritan. It's like the worst thing you call Him. There was no evidence of that, but they were just trying to accuse Him, make it sound bad. And these are the people to whom Jesus shows mercy. It's people the, Jew, the Jews hated. Just as Jonah went to Nineveh, we see Jesus going to the Samaritans. Well, I, I want to look closely here at the, the context found in verses 1 through 6. We see that Jesus was enjoying this great ministry in Jerusalem, in, Judea, in the Judean area south around Jerusalem. That's what verse 1 is talking about, that he was baptizing more converts than John. So John's ministry started out, lots of, lots of converts, lots of baptisms, and then Jesus started going and Jesus was baptizing more than John was. Though Jesus Himself, as He points out in verse 2, wasn't baptizing anyone. I think that was wise for Christ. So that people said, oh, Jesus baptized me. As if that was something real special. Listen, it doesn't matter who baptizes people. Judas baptized many people. Right? What matters is that they're following Christ. But they were, His ministry was was succeeding. It was going well. Many people repenting of the sins. On one hand, that's good for Jesus, good for His ministry. On the other hand, it's kind of, kind of bad for his ministry because just as the Pharisees and Sadducees had their mind <clears throat> set on their, their chief opponent, who was John, who was out in the wilderness, and all Jerusalem was coming to him, and all Judea was coming to him to be baptized. They saw him as the enemy, and he was rising up. And you know what they did to him? They saw fit that he was imprisoned, and eventually it's because of that he, he was killed. And, and Jesus knew that as he was surpassing John... The focus is now shifting to him. Jesus is now becoming public enemy number one. And so he takes off up north, out of, out of the way. Because knew, he knew as soon as the Jews are going to investigate his ministry, uh, that wouldn't be good for his ministry. And his hour hadn't yet come. So he fled north to Galilee to escape the coming persecution. It says in verse 4 that he had to go on that trip <clears throat> through Samaria. It's pretty simple. Judas in the south... Galilee's in the north, Samaria's in the middle. If you're going to travel from the south to the north, you go through Samaria. Now, at, some, at this point, many preachers wax eloquent on this word, had to. They point out the Jews hated the Samaritans so bad that rather than going from Judea to Galilee, they didn't go through Samaria, they went around Samaria. They crossed over the Jordan, maybe this way, over the Jordan River, up Transjordan, and then cross the Jordan River, get back into Galilee. How many of you have heard that before? Some of you, a good, good fair number of you. And they make a big point that the Samaritans are ho so hated. And yet, I'm not so convinced that this is exactly the case. Now, now to be sure, there were some who did this, some who really hated the Samaritans, just to make a point, did this. But, I think it was more regular than not that people went right through Samaria. And uh, I just point this out because so many point out contrary, but Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived just after the time of Christ, told this conflict one time between the Galileans and the Samaritans. Apparently some Galileans were in Samaria and the Samaritans killed them. They went to the governor to try to find a resolution to the problem. He didn't find it, so they took matters in their own hand and they plundered people. And then there was this battle back and forth. Finally, the, the governor got involved. And, and the point of what Josephus said is this. It was a big problem because, quote, it was the custom of the Galileans when they came to the holy city at the festival south to take their journeys through the country of the Samaritans. 
And so with this political uprising, it's going to make that path really difficult and dangerous. And that's the path they, they often traveled, according to Josephus. So this whole notion that the, the Jews never went through there, I don't think holds support. Though some, some went around Samaria, many went right through that, through that area. And I think that's John's point here about he had to go because it was just straight north of there. Now, traveling in Jesus' day wasn't easy. They didn't have highways, didn't have tollways, couldn't travel 65 miles an hour down the road in your nicely heated or air-conditioned car. No, rather they were forced to walk from village to village to village, walking about 20 miles a day. It's about how far they could go. As they had no lighting along the road, they were forced to do the traveling during the day. And one day, so it was high noon, which is sixth, the sixth hour according to the Jewish time. Jewish time starts at six in the morning when the sun comes up, and by the sixth hour, it's high noon, the hottest point of the day. Jesus arrived at this well, which is near the city of Sychar. And when he got there, he was weary from his journey, and he sat down on the well. He sent his disciples off into um, the city to get some food. He himself was sitting there, and and uh, at some point, Jesus was there alone, resting upon the wall. And then this woman, this woman comes up to him in verse seven. But before we really get into verse seven, I do want us to reflect upon this fact of verse six. Wonderful truth here shows that Christ was wearied from his journey. It means that Jesus was every bit a man. It's good for us to see that our Lord came with flesh and bone. It's good for us to see that Jesus knew what being tired was like. And Jesus knew what being hungry was like. And Jesus knew what being thirsty was like. And Jesus knew what it was like to be tempted. And thus the implication of that is that He can sympathize with us now as being our High Priest. It says in the end of Hebrews 4, Therefore, since we have a great High Priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, the writer says, let us draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus has been among us. He can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our hungers, with our longings, with our passions. And so I say this, church family, go to Him. Because he's a merciful high priest. And here's even our first hint of mercy that we see. Just the fact that he was wearied. You bring in the whole biblical revelation that he's a high priest. He is one who, who gives mercy and gives grace to those who seek it. Now the, what's interesting here is that Joe, though Jesus is in great need, he's hungry, he's tired, he's thirsty, he meets someone who had a greater need. That is the woman at the well. And I want for us to look at see how it is that Jesus extends mercy to this woman. First of all, we see Jesus, as my first point this morning, He was engaging. He was engaging. Verse 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now to us, this doesn't seem like a big deal. I mean, Jesus comes to the well and He's thirsty. He doesn't have anything to draw the water with. The well is deep. He doesn't have any disciples to help him because according to verse 8, he'd sent them off to buy food because they were all were hungry. And Jesus, being all alone without any help, saw this woman come up and just asked the woman for, for a drink. In our culture, it's not a, not a big deal. Maybe some, somewhere you're out someplace, you need to make a phone call, your, your cell phone is down, you need somebody to call someone else's cell phone. We would, we would hardly think twice about going to someone and just say, could I borrow your cell phone and just make one quick call? And Sure, we could do that. Similar to what Jesus is saying, he's in need, just asking for a simple drink of water, be able to you know, meet his request in about 30 seconds or so. But this woman was shocked. Verse 9, Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? As I mentioned earlier, there was a rift between um, the Jews and the Samaritans. So she mentioned there, I'm a Samaritan how is it you're even talking with me? And they often refused even to speak with each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. They just, they just passed by their way. But it goes deeper than that. Not only was she a Samaritan, but she identifies herself as a Samaritan woman. 
She was a woman. In the culture of Jesus' day, men and women just didn't have regular conversations and contact with each other. It was socially taboo for men to speak with women in those days. In fact, even in verse 27, when the disciples come, they're amazed that she was speaking with a woman. What is this? You know, social taboo back then. But it, but it goes... Um, but Jesus did speak with her. And the woman was shocked. And my point here this morning is that Jesus was intentionally and actively engaging this woman in conversation. In so doing, I believe he's putting mercy on display. He was under no obligation to speak with her. He was overcoming social barriers. He was overcoming religious barriers. He was overcoming gender barriers and talking with this woman. It would have been completely normal, completely accepted in those days for Jesus simply to have ignored this woman. But to show mercy to her, he engages her in conversation. And I just say this. If we love God's mercy and we desire to show it to others, we also need to be proactive in our conversations. J.C. Ryle said it well. He said this. Simple as this request may seem, it opened a door to spiritual conversation. It threw a bridge across the gulf which lay between her and him and it led to the conversion of her soul. It is vain to expect that the spiritually ignorant will voluntarily come to us and begin to seek knowledge. We must begin with them, go down to them in the spirit of courteous and friendly aggression. And that's what he's doing here. Courteous and friendly aggression. He instigated things. He was courteous, but yet he was, had a measure of aggression with him. And verse 10, you can see how he, he trans, transitions from this conversation about physical water to spiritual water. <clears throat> verse 10. He said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you should have asked Him and He would have given you living water. With these words, Jesus opens the door to spiritual conversation. He, he turned the conversation from the physical to the spiritual. And I think it's a skill that we can work on developing. I know that I can, and I'm looking to Jesus this morning to help me. I know oftentimes it helps if you just think about a situation, think about what's going on, to come up with something, to think ahead how you can transition from merely the physical to the, the spiritual, to be friendly, and courteous, and yet aggressive, to engage people. How easy is it to talk with unbelievers about the weather and sports and our children, but how difficult it is to transition to spiritual matters. And uh, Charles Spurgeon showed how poorly he did the transition, which I'm so encouraged by because Spurgeon's like the prince of preachers, like the, the greatest preacher, I would argue, ever. Um, he says this, I shall never forget the manner in which a thirsty individual once begged me upon Clapham Common. I saw him with a very large truck in which he was carrying an extremely large small parcel and wondered why he had not put the parcel in his pocket and left the big machine at home. I said, It looks odd to see so large a truck for such a small load. And he stopped and looked me seriously in the face and said, Yes, sir, it is a very odd thing. But you know, I've met with an odder thing this very day. I've been about working and sweating all this air blessed day, until now, I haven't met a single gentleman that looked as if he'd give me a pint of beer until I saw you. See what he's doing. He's transitioning his problem, Spurgeon's comment, to his desire and passion for a, a jug of beer. And then Spurgeon continues, I considered that turn of the conversation very neatly managed. And we, with a far better subject upon our minds, ought to be equally able to introduce the topic upon which our heart is set. There was an ease in this man's manner, which I envied. I love that, that Spurgeon envied this guy's manner to transition from one thing to his desire for some alcohol. He says, For I did not find it quite so simple a matter to introduce my own topic to his notice. Yet if I had been thinking as much about how I could do him good as he had upon how to obtain a drink, I feel sure I would have succeeded in reaching my point. If by any means we may save some, we must, like our Lord, 
talk at table to good purpose, yes, and on the margin of the well, and by the road, and on the seashore, and in the house, and in the field. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's introducing a spiritual topic of conversation. Originally it was physical water or drink, and Jesus turned around to address the issue of the true spiritual water. And in so doing, really, he shares the gospel with this woman. He says, yes, I asked you for a drink of water, ma'am. But if you knew, if you really knew what was going on, it would all be different. I'd give you some living water. That water from which you will taste and never thirst again. That's what he was saying. Now, in hindsight, we can look back and see that that's what he was saying. But this woman missed the metaphor, I think. Missed it entirely. She's still thinking about the water in the well. She missed it. So Jesus attempted to make a bridge in engaging her. Didn't quite work, but it kind of did. And he's going to go back again to try to engage some more. But she thought of the water. And, and for her, living water is moving water. And that's what living water means. Just moving water. And moving water is clean, pure water. But the water that just sits isn't quite so clean. And in verse 12, here's how she responds. She said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. All she could focus on was the situation at hand. She looked at Jesus as a tired and weary traveler. One who had nothing in his hand to get the well. Today, Jacob's well is about 100 feet deep. You know, it probably had a little bit of a cave-in since it. So it's maybe 100 feet deep, maybe probably deeper the days of Jesus, she's probably measuring him up, says, uh, I, don't, I don't think your lar- arm is long enough there, buddy, <laughs> to get down and get some water. I don't know how you're going to do it. She couldn't conceive how Jesus was going to get living water out of this well. A- and then she said, well, are you going to do it some magic way? You're not better than our father Jacob, are you? And goes all the way back to Jacob. She talks about this very well. And she knew well the historical significance, how it traced back to Jacob. And Jacob indeed had that well there that he gave on to the children of Israel, on and on and on. And he himself, Jacob, drank from it. And you can still drink from it today. It is still there. Avon and I, we were in Israel. How long were we in Israel? Ten years ago? Ten years ago in Israel, and uh, we went there to Jacob's Well. And uh, like today, it's you know, got a church over it. It's a half-completed church, still half-completed. <laughs> Ten years ago, I saw a picture recently, it's still not completed church over there, but... And Jacob's well, you still drink from it today, even 2,000 years later. So are you greater than Jacob? You don't have anything to draw with. And then Jesus again is engaging her, bringing things spiritually. He says, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. And again, Jesus comes with the Gospel. He comes with something that far exceeds anything that she has ever experienced before. All she has experienced is the routine that all of us know, right? We drink, and after a little bit, we get thirsty. And then we drink some more to satisfy our thirst, and then a little bit later, we're thirsty again. And so we drink, and we get thirsty. We drink, and we get thirsty, and Jesus has something else. He has a drink that will satisfy forever. You drink of this water, and you'll never, ever, ever be thirsty again. The water he gives would be eternal life. And of course, Jesus is talking about himself being the water, being the, the purifying, cleansing agent here. And Jesus satisfies all of our thirsts and all of our longings. You know, it's so easy for all of us to be satisfied, to seek our satisfaction, longings in other things, like money, and movies, and friends, and sex, and basketball, and sleep, and jobs, and recreational activities. We go on and on and on, all the different things in which we're involved in. You know, whether it's technology, right? or whether it's some specialized interest, or whether it's something on the internet you like to watch, something on the internet you like to see, some other hobby, some other group, some other people, I mean, all these type of things, and yet all these things will ultimately end up giving us an empty theme, stomach, an empty stomach in our feeling, right? <laughs> an empty feeling in our stomach. But Jesus is different. In Christ, we are totally satisfied in Him. He will quench all of our longings. All our spiritual longings are ultimately satisfied on on Christ. And if you know nothing of this, I just say, seek Him. Seek 
Him where the, the longings and satisfaction can be found. Verse 15 begins to indicate that, that the woman begins to get this. Now, not fully in any sense, but she's, she's starting to. It's really my second point. Jesus turns the conversation. We've seen Jesus engaging her. But now He seeks to communicate the truth to her. And I, I'm just saying the second thing she's doing is she's convicting. Convicting. By this I mean simply Jesus beginning to get to the heart of this woman's sin. And, and my point here this morning is really how Jesus does this. He does it in a very merciful, kind, and gracious way. I mean, when Jesus shows the woman her sin, He doesn't condemn her, doesn't accuse her, doesn't scorn or frown, doesn't act surprised, doesn't yell at her. Rather, he, He's just gently prodding in her life, gently poking to, to allow her to see her sin. And it's important that it's not only we engage people, but we need to be convicting them as well of their own sin because you can never savor the sweetness of the Gospel until you taste the sourness of your sin. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Let's, let's, let's see how you understand the sourness of your sin. That's what we need to do with others. So engage them. Get them to their sin. Show them how they are sinful. And this is how Jesus does it in this instance. Natural conversation. First begins in verse 15 though, when she begins to see that there's something else going on here. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. I, I, I want this satisfaction in the water. So I, I, don't, I, I don't want to have to come out here to draw this water again. And I think she's a bit like Nicodemus who slowly understood that Jesus wasn't talking about physical birth but He was talking about a spiritual new birth. She senses that Jesus is talking about something different but she can't quite figure it out. So she reaches a point where she is desirous of having this, whatever it is, that will satisfy her thirst. But there is some physical remnant there. She's not quite, not quite getting there, but, but getting there a little bit. And so Jesus then said to her, verse 16, go call your husband. She said, verse 17, I have no husband. And then Jesus says, you have correctly said, I have no husband. If you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, I love, I love how this statement does two things. It exposes things about Jesus and exposes things about this woman. First of all, it exposes about Jesus that, you know what, he, he knows a few things. He is omniscient. He knows about her sinful past. But also, this woman exposes some things in her life as well. exposes some sin in her life. You know, she's not lived a righteous life. To go through five marriages, she knows and sees how she can't get along with men. And now, even what she's doing, living with a man, living with her boyfriend, she knows now that she's not living a, a righteous life. And, and I want for you to catch the marvelous mercy of Christ. That just how it is that she convicted her of her sin... Jesus could have responded like the men responded who, who caught the woman in adultery. I mean, they caught her in the act. That means they were seeking and pursuing after her. They took her and they dragged her to Jesus to test Him, is what John 8 says. Telling him, Moses instructed us to stone this one. What should we do? And it's just very hard. This is a sinner. He's standing before us. What should we do? And Jesus was silent. And then we pressed Him. Jesus, what should we do? He said, He is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw the first stone. And at that, everyone left, the oldest to the youngest, realizing they too are sinful as well. And then Jesus had a tender conversation with this woman. He said, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. What a... What a great, merciful conversation Jesus had. And that's the same mercy I think that He shows here to this Samaritan woman. He didn't condemn her as an adulterer. didn't condemn her as a fornicator, though that's what she was. Possibly she was a harlot. We don't know. But He wasn't ready to stone her. Rather, He allowed the Spirit of God just to convict her of her sin. And He did so gently. He did so mercifully. Now, at this point, let me just say this. That that mercifully 
confronting people in their sin isn't always the only way to do things. I mean, Jesus didn't expose sin that way all the time. In fact, Jesus was very strong and condemning towards the self-righteous Pharisees who believed that they were righteous and needed no repentance. He called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look really good. But inside, you're a dead man's bones. He called them a brood of vipers. He said the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into heaven before you guys get into heaven. For the self-righteous, Jesus used these statements to jolt them. To, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? Right? Because they needed to be jolted. So I was recently talking to someone who says, Law to the proud, grace to the humble. To those who are proud, bring the law and bring it strong and hard to convict them of their sin and show them how, how much they're lacking and how much they need to see their own sin. But to the humble who see their sin, they need grace and mercy. The humble who see their sin, they don't need to just be pounded in more of their sin to feel bad. Jesus here, though, merely just exposed the sin of this woman in His mercy. And, and I think that he was gentle because he sensed her humility. I think she was well aware she wasn't a righteous person. In fact, the very fact that she came alone to the well in the heat of the day probably gave Jesus an insight. This is a social outcast. Maybe the way she was dressed. But it's easiest to draw water in the evening when it's cool. Drawing water is hard work. And yet, she came in the afternoon. And the wells were often social places where people gathered socially to talk and mingle. It might be like our Starbucks today. That's just where people went to, to be. So it's like the social time, whether it's early in the morning or late at night, you can fear all the, the scuttlebutt that's around. And the women would primarily do that. And it was kind of a social place to, to be there and to gather. But the fact that she was there alone probably showed that after five marriages, she probably wasn't too accepted today in the social circles and her arrangement now of living with her boyfriend couldn't have helped matters either. So rather than facing the ridicule and scorn of the other Samaritans, she'd just come when no one was there. I think that's how Jesus had insight. But I think he had special insight to know the number of five husbands that she had had. And I think about her own knowledge of her sin. I mean, sure, that the Samaritans weren't famous for their righteousness. And yet being so close to Israel, they, they heard of God's righteousness. They, she traced things back to Jacob. So she had some semblance of Old Testament history and she had some semblance of her sin and she knew of her sin. And she acknowledged that and confessed it there in verse 19 when she said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She said, You're exactly right. She acknowledged her sin. Now whether she repented of her sin right there or not is difficult to know, but, but she does seemingly start to seek the truth here in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you people say, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. It's really my, my third point this morning. We see Jesus engaging her, convicting her, and now teaching her. And, and really by, by teaching her, he's answering some of her questions and really leading her to Jesus, leading her to himself. That's what her, his focus is at this point. Now there's some who say in verse 20 that this woman is just trying to change the subject. No, I don't want to talk about my sin. You ever seen that with people? You start poking them? start finding out about their sin and they don't want to talk about it? Yvonne, am I like that at all? <laughs> I mean, I am. I am. Third time where she starts to poke me and um, I clam up. I don't want to talk about it. Much to my, my shame. And it's, it's hard. It's hard for her. It's hard for me. It's hard for marriage. But I see, I know that that what it is like when you, you start to talk about your sin, you don't, you don't want to talk about it. And some say that's, that's what this woman was doing. She, she goes to this esoteric theological question about where ought we to worship. And yet I'm not sure it's so trivial. I'm not, because several reasons here. First of all, Jacob's well was in, within eyeshot of Mount Gerizim. When Yvonne and I were there, and we were at the well... We looked up, and you could see Mount Gerizim in the south and Mount Ebal in the north. They're just like big mounds. I don't know how tall they are. A couple hundred feet, maybe? I don't know, a couple hundred feet. They're not, not gigantic mountains. They're just, just these, these mounds. I got some picture, a picture there on the children's notes. You can see just these mounds like this, and, and the well was like right in the middle of them. And so, and so this woman was looking at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and she talked about... Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, right? She's pointing to Mount Gerizim, which is just right there. So that's an issue about them, about worship. 
The Jews, on the other hand, they didn't worship Mount Gerizim, they worshipped in Jerusalem, and rightly so. The whole idea of why a temple was built in Jerusalem was so that God would have a place where He could put His name that was in Jerusalem, and the Jews held that God was to be worshipped, sacrifices would be made in Jerusalem itself. But the Samaritans had a different story. They didn't look so much to the establishment of the temple in the days of Solomon. They looked into the entrance of the land. Because when Israel took over, conquered the land, they were supposed to come right here to Shechem. And they were supposed to then put six of the tribes on Mount Gerizim and six of them on Mount Ebal. And those on Mount Ebal would read the curses of the law and those on Mount Gerizim would read the blessings of the law. And so the Samaritans thought that this mountain is uh, blessed of God and that is a place where you ought to worship Him. They even built a temple there on Mount Gerizim where they performed sacrifices. So you think about the Jews. When is the Holy of Holies and the sacrificial place of the, the, uh, the temple, they said, that's where you need to worship. And the Samaritans say, no, this is where you need to worship. And, and theological drifts, rifts between these people as well. I think this woman thought here in verse 20 that, man, this man's a prophet. Maybe he can solve some of these, this debate about the whole place of worship. But, but what even might come more, which is why I think that she's probably not changing the topic, subject so much, is that, is that this question really is an issue of how can I be right with God? Can I stay here in Sychar? That's where the well was. Or should I seek Him up in Jerusalem? Where should I go? Fundamentally, her question was this, how can I worship God correctly? That's why I think that she was, she was really being led here to the truth and then Jesus teaches her with a masterful response. He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming and now is. When neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which we can see right there, probably pointing, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. Meaning that, you know what, the Samaritans got it wrong. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The Jews are right. But, Here's the important thing. An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And I love this answer, because a woman gave a multiple guest question. Right? Where's the true place of worship? Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? And Jesus answered, none of the above. While affirming the correctness of the Jews, the heirs of the Samaritans, Jesus focused upon what would take place in the near future. There's this hour coming. You can see it there in verse 21 and 23. And throughout all of John's Gospel, he's anticipating this hour, when the hour is coming. And the hour is his death, his, his uh, sacrifice upon the cross. he fully be revealed, this Messiah. And when that takes place, all this talk about Jerusalem, Mount Gerizim, will become irrelevant because everything's going to change. Soon the question isn't going to be about where, it's going to be about how. The key phrase is found in the last half of verse 23. True worshipers. These are the right worshipers. These are the ones who God accepts. These will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. These words are pregnant with meaning. In spirit and in truth. See, it's important that we come to God in spirit, in a eagerness, in a willingness. The, the, the desires God. God accepts no worship that comes out of compulsion or, or ritual or out of duty or formula. God's not interested in that. He's, worship, he's interested in, in worship that's authentic, that's spirit-engaged, that has a zeal and has a passion for God. And it's important to come to God in truth that's in accordance with reality. The worship of God can't be based on human opinion or to come in some self-styled manner. The Jews had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with righteousness, Paul says in Romans 10, I think. They sought to establish their own righteousness rather than realizing that their only righteousness can be through Christ. He says they have this zeal, but they're not in accordance with truth and how important it is to do it in spirit and in truth, and they both must be together. You can't have one without the other. You can't just approach God on the grounds of truth. There are many in this world who have correct orthodox theology, but they have no heart to worship the Lord. Even demons believe in shudder, is what James says. You need to come to God with a heart that, that loves Him, believes Him, trusts in Him. Truth isn't enough. 
nor is it enough just to approach God on willingness. There are many people who say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it. As if you create reality. Well, that's not how it is. You need to come based upon His terms. And that's what Jesus was saying. Come in spirit and in truth. And the woman here has some insight. She recognizes that she's, she's getting it more and more. When her conversion comes, I'm not sure, but she says, I know that, verse 25, Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. And then when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Right? She's look, getting closer. She's, she's looking to someone else for help. She doesn't know who this Messiah will be. She doesn't know when this will be. But she does know that she's got this hope in someone else who can really answer her questions for her and will guide her and guard her. And, and that is a huge step when you, you seek to, to move from yourself to another. If you seek to save yourself, you're in trouble. You need someone else to save you. And Jesus must have really rocked her boat in verse 26. I who speak to you am He. I am. I'm the guy. I'm the Messiah you're looking for. I've got the answers. Follow me. And we don't know how the conversation went there, but really the conversation stopped because we see that the disciples came to Him, verse 27, where Maisie had been speaking to this woman, yet none of them said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? And so it's almost like the disciples came, they're amazed at this awkward confrontation between them. And then, then the woman left, she even left her, her water pot there and went to the city and began to evangelize her city. Because we're going to see them coming, the whole city coming, verse 30, coming to him. And I just say this, getting back to my point about just, we're looking at this text through the lens of the mercy of of Jesus, what incredible kindness it was for her to meet the Messiah face to face, and she was. And that was Jesus seeking her out, showing her of, of himself. It's incredible mercy. And she became the means of the conversion of many in her city. Look at verse 42. After the city came and saw Jesus, they said, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, woman. But we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The Samaritans repenting and believing and trusting in the Messiah. And really, verse 42 and verse 29 are, are the reason why John included this story in the first place. I mean, at the end of, of, of John's Gospel, he includes a little phrase there about why it is that he wrote this Gospel. There, he made a choice, as all scripture writers do, about what to include and what not to include. Under the inspiration of God, I'm not sure how that works, but what to include, what not to include. John said at the end of his, his gospel, there are many things that I could have included, but I couldn't include them all. But these things I've included, so that, he said in John 20, verse 31, these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you may have life in His name. And that's the whole point here of John chapter 4, is showing Jesus to be the Messiah. Showing Him to be the one who has the living water. Showing Jesus to be the one in whom is life. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, and then by believing in Him, you get the life after that. And this church is really a testimony to that fact. We found our life in Him. I say, have you found your life in Him? Have you believed in Jesus the Christ? Have you experienced life in His name? If you haven't, I just just urge you, all my soul, to seek Him, because He's got the living water. Trust in the Savior. He's the only one who can save you from your sin. If you believe, which is most of us here this morning, I have two points of application. First of all, I encourage you to see the harvest. See the harvest. That comes in verses 31 through 38. Let me just read it again. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They got all this food. Eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Isn't it? Maybe you've experienced it as well. When ministry goes great, you have an opportunity to share the gospel. You see God at work. All of a sudden, the, the spiritual excitement and encouragement of that just 
overcomes any physical longings you have. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, I've been engaged in spiritual ministry. I've been invigorated by that. Yes, I'm depleted a bit. But I'm encouraged by what God is doing here. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? They like missed it, like they always do, like we are prone to do as well. And then he says in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. So he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I just encourage you to, to see the harvest. Right? To look on the fields as Jesus looked. To look upon the lost and to say that they, there are things there to be sown and there are things there to be reaped. I encourage you to realize that you may be a sower, verse 37. You may be a reaper. But I encourage you to be intentional to be one of those. Be some of those. Be intentional in bringing the message of God's mercy in Christ to the world. Right? Be engaging people. Find them and be active and speak to them and, and transition to spiritual matters. Be convicting people. Be showing people of their sin and drawing them to the Savior. Be teaching people. Direct them to Jesus. We need to see the harvest. We need to be out. We need to be talking with others. Secondly, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, I, my second point of application this morning is to celebrate the supper. That's what we're doing every Sunday in Lent. We've done it now five, four weeks. This will be our fifth week. We'll do it next Sunday as well. We'll just remember and reflect upon Christ. I mean, After all, that's what John is written for. That is what we hope for. It's what we long for. Jesus himself told us that, that we ought to remember him in this way by just taking simple bread, by drinking a simple cup to, uh, to look and remember Him. And Jesus did talk several times about this hour. I just want to take you to a couple points when this hour's come. Turn in John chapter 13. <clears throat> Actually, John chapter 12. You say, when is the hour? He says in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified by crucifixion. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has been troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And he's distressed and he's troubled and, and he's just arguing there. Should, should I be saved from this hour? Should I, should I not go to the cross? Because you know in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was so agonizing about this whole thing, yet not my will but your will be done. That's the same thing he's saying here. They say, Father, save me from this hour, but this is the very thing I came for. So the hour of Christ is the hour that's coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's worshiping Christ in light of His sacrifice. That's the hour He's talking about. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. So if you believe and you're trusting in Christ this morning, I invite you to take the Lord's Supper. If there's sin you're harboring, I encourage you to confess that right now so that you celebrate, partake in a worthy manner. If there's sin you're harboring, you're, you're just refusing to give it up, then I say, let the supper pass you. Paul told us that if you judge the body wrongly, uh, condemnation will come. So let's judge our bodies rightly. Let's judge our hearts. But realize that His death on the cross is the way we drink from Him. This, this whole illustration here in John 4 about drinking the living water, it's so appropriate for us right, to, to drink of His blood. No, not really. But but symbolically thinking about Christ, drinking in the blood which washes us, brings us thoroughly cleansed before the Lord.
So let me pray, and then the men will come and we'll sing a song focusing upon the cross, and we'll celebrate the supper together. Lord, I thank You for how Christ always in His ministry showed so much mercy to those who confess themselves to be sinners. He was so hard against the self-righteous, but so merciful to those who needed nothing but mercy. And I pray this morning You would protect us, Lord, from self-righteousness. How easy is it to be religious and to think ourselves as good churchgoers who are pleasing in Your sight because of the great things that we do and yet realize, God, that the only good we do is because You work it in us. We are Your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which You prepared beforehand and we merely walk in the works that You've prepared for us. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that we would properly see the, the things we do as all coming from Your hand. I would pray that You would commune with us now in this time of communion, that we would reflect upon Christ, His death. So stir us afresh as we think about Him. We sing of the redemption, Lord, to the glory of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.